Hi, Game Getters. I'm your host, Ashley Denny. I want to take a few minutes and start this episode off by thanking our listeners as you have stuck with us through this obvious transition phase. We have been hard at work to get the website updated, revamp our social media, and make sure that we are bringing you the best content possible. Each week, myself and Trisha will be diving into the explicit details of our lives here in Dallas. We'll be dishing out dirty deets from our 20s and thriving about our 30s. Relationships, sex, the social scene, embarrassing blonde moments, mom truth bombs, and workflow. You will find it all here on She Got Game. We will also continue to release bonus episodes of true crime cases for all of you crime getters out there. So check out shegotgamepodcast.com. We have new bios up, links for promos, and even a contact form that sends an email directly to us. So keep the feedback coming. You will also find a link to donate. Game getters, you make this podcast possible for us. A 99 cent monthly donation, yep, you heard that right guys, it's going to get you a shout out on a future episode. A 4.99 monthly donation will earn you a She Got Game decal. So check out our page now and keep an eye out for updates. Guys, Father's Day is just around the corner. It is only a week away. And if you are having trouble with what to get your dad, look no further. We have a solution for you. Story Worth. Right now, if you go to shegotgamepodcast.com and click on StoryWorth at the top of the page, this will direct you to a link that's going to get you $20 off your first book. StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your dad to share any personal stories with his loved ones every week. At the end of the year, he'll get them all bound in a beautiful hardcover book. Strengthen your bond as you get to know your dad with the most personal Father's Day gift of all. Here is how it works. Each week, we send him questions you've never thought to ask. And by we, I mean the guys at StoryWorth. He then writes a story and easily sends it back directly to the email which is shared with you. Then, at the end of the year, a year's worth of stories are bound into a beautiful keepsake book and sent to you for all generations to love and cherish. I just bought my mother and mother-in-law StoryWorth for Mother's Day, and they have already answered several questions each. I wish I would have known about the service before my father passed away in 2016 so that I would have had those memories and stories to share with my kiddos. Guys, don't get dad a mug or another t-shirt for Father's Day. Get him story worth. It's an investment that will last a lifetime. Remember, go to shegotgamepodcast.com and click on the link at the top of the page for $20 off your first book. In 1957, law enforcement made a discovery that shocked Philadelphia. The battered body of a young boy stuffed inside a cardboard box and dumped by the side of the road just outside of the city. 
When Philadelphia police found the body, based on a tip called in by a local college student, they had no idea it was just the beginning of a mystery that is still unsolved to this day. And while the authorities know that the child, who the media named the boy in the box, died as a result of multiple blows to the head, they have no idea how he sustained the fatal injuries. Despite chasing down countless leads over the course of six decades, investigators still do not know the boy's name and if he was murdered or died accidentally, causing many to call him America's unknown child. A young hunter set out to check his traps near a park just north of Philadelphia. As he moved through the brush, he found a small cardboard box lying discarded on the ground. Inside was the body of the boy, naked, but wrapped in a plaid blanket. Fearing that the police would confiscate his traps if he alerted them to the box, the young hunter ignored it and resumed hunting. Several days later, a college student driving down the road noticed a bunny running alongside the highway. The student knew there were traps in the area, and he stopped to make sure the animal was safe. As he sifted through the underbrush, searching for traps, he came across the box. Though he too feared interaction with the police, the student reported the body to them. Now, this college student, Frederick Benosis, reported finding the new body of what appeared to be a young boy. Although exclaimed that he did wait a full day before reporting because he thought the body was a doll. Eventually, investigators learned Benosis, whom they initially considered a suspect, did not immediately contact law enforcement because he had been spying on girls at a nearby school, not chasing a rabbit when he found the boy. Benosis was eventually cleared as a suspect after passing a lie detector test. The boy looked to be four to six years old and his fragile, nude corpse was covered in bruises and wrapped in a flannel blanket inside a discarded baby's bassinet cardboard box distributed by the J.C. Penney store. Once local media found out about the discovery, they were fixated on this case. Pictures of the young boy were plastered everywhere, including flyers and gas bills for the Philadelphia customers. Over the next several years, over 400,000 flyers were sent out in the Philadelphia area, as well as other towns in Pennsylvania. A forensic facial reconstruction was in fact done, and a drawing of a young, happy little boy was included on all of these posters. The flyers were posted in police stations, post offices, and as we mentioned, even included in envelopes with gas bills. But still, no one came forward with information. This case was already cold. Given that the boy was young, police were hopeful that he would be quickly identified. However, once they saw the body, their hopes were dashed. While people would surely be looking for a missing boy who was healthy, well cared for, and clearly loved, it was unlikely that they would be looking for a scrawny, dirty, malnourished one. And unfortunately, the boy in the box was just that. 
The lead detective on the case thought the boy in the box could have drowned after falling in a lake and despite having multiple head injuries because the bottom of the child's feet and palms on one of his hands were both wrinkled as if they had been underwater for an extended period of time. Investigators were unable to determine if the boy had been submerged in water before or after his death, but they ruled the cause of death as blunt force trauma to the head, not drowning. In addition to his wrinkled soles and palm, a medical examiner found the child had small clumps of hair from his head stuck to his body, reinforcing the doctor's belief that the boy had been wet around the time of his death. Doctors who examined his body discovered many signs of prolonged abuse. He weighed just 30 pounds and stood only 40 and a half inches tall. According to a medical examiner, the boy in the box had the body of a child who was just over two years old, and the x-ray showed evidence of arrested growth. As mentioned, his hair was matted, and it seemed to have been recently cut, which led to some theories later on, and also assuming this was the cause of the clumps in which were still clung to his body. He was covered with surgical stars, most notably on his ankles, groins, and chin. And despite the fact that he looked abandoned, police fingerprinted him, hoping to find a match. Sadly, no one did. Another problem with the case was that due to the cold weather in Philadelphia around the time authorities unearthed the boy in the box, the medical examiner was unable to pinpoint his exact time of death, saying it could have occurred days or even weeks before the discovery. Detectives received many tips from people who claimed to know the true identity of the boy in the box and just how he died. One of the most popular theories about the boy was that he was an orphan who lived at a foster home when he died accidentally, either by falling out of a window or drowning in a lake. This particular theory came from the medical examiner. A psychic had told him that she thought the child had died while he was living in an old mansion that a couple had turned into a foster home. Now, they had already interviewed a husband and a wife who ran a children's home out of a mansion, and when he attended an estate sale at the home in 1961 after the family moved away, he said he discovered a bassinet in the house similar to the one that had been packaged in the cardboard box, like the one they found the child's body in. They believed the boy may have been the secret son of a couple's young daughter, and when he died in some sort of accident, they dumped his body because they didn't want to be suspected of murder or have anyone find out about the existence of their illegitimate grandchild. Decades later, a detective followed up this lead and interviewed the woman, who they thought was the boy's mother, only to find out that she did have a son who accidentally died in 1957. However, more records proved that the boy in the box could not have been her child. Investigators were surmised that someone had cut off most of the child's hair around the time of his death. This led to an interesting theory, although not as popular as the one we previously discussed. When they discovered the boy, tufts of his own hair were stuck to his body. However, according to the medical examiner, the person who cut the boy's hair had done so in a rush and caused hazard in the manner that could cause death. Reportedly, there were four distinct bruises on the child's forehead, as well as signs of a cerebral hemorrhage. Law enforcement then theorized the cause of death may have been accidental. Whoever trimmed his hair with clippers could have inadvertently applied too much pressure while holding the child's head in place. A Philadelphia barber 
did come forward shortly to say that he was certain he'd cut the child's hair approximately one week prior to when they found the boy. The barber maintained the story, and he said that he had come into his shop with his older brother and had left unharmed. The barber then directed authorities to an area called Strawberry Mansion, citing it was where the boy lived. Investigators followed the lead but made no further discovery. Another rather popular theory about the boy in the box is someone had raised him as a girl, which is why investigators had difficulty pinpointing his identity. One of the biggest components of this theory is a forensic artist and co-founder at the Vidoke Society, a private group of skilled professionals who are dedicated to solving crimes. According to Bender, the reason someone cut the child's hair around the time of his death was to hide the fact that he'd been raised as a girl. Bender also said that pictures have been taken of the boy in the box show evidence that someone had plucked the child's eyebrows either before or after the death. This indicates someone had altered the boy's appearance to make him appear more feminine. Bender ended up drawing a sketch of what he thought the boy in the box would have looked like with long hair and possibly bangs in an effort to help identify the child if someone had tried to misrepresent his gender, although this lead went cold as well. In 1961, Philadelphia investigators questioned Kenneth Dudley and his wife, Irene Dudley, to determine if the boy in the box had been one of the middle-aged couple's 10 children. Mr. Dudley was a carnival worker, so the entire family traveled up and down the East Coast as he continued to look for work. However, the Dudleys came to the attention of law enforcement when one of their children, seven-year-old Carol Ann, died as a result of neglect, malnutrition, and exposure. Sounds familiar, right? Instead of burying this young child's body in a cemetery, the couple wrapped their daughter in a blanket and placed her body in a wooded area in Virginia. Authorities learned seven of the Dudley's 10 children had died as a result of malnutrition and neglect, and none received proper burials, causing Philadelphia investigators to suspect that the boy in the box may be one of their sons. However, after questioning the Dudley's, and as clear as this looked, the investigation turned out to be non-accurate, and in fact, the boy in the box was not one of the Dudley's. After police found the child's body, fingerprint expert Bill Kelly theorized that the boy in the box may have been one of the many Hungarian refugees who came to America in the 1950s. Kelly developed this theory after he saw a newspaper article published in 1956, the year before the discovery, about people who had recently relocated to the United States from Hungary. Interestingly, a picture of a Hungarian refugee accompanied the article and one of the immigrants in the photo looked remarkably similar to the boy in the box. Now, Kelly followed up on this theory on the basis police were unable to identify the boy and there were no records of his existence due to his status as a recent immigrant. However, after going through more than 11,000 passport photos, Kelly tracked down the Hungarian boy from the 1956 article and he learned the child was alive and well and living with his family in North Carolina. Another cold lead. Now on October 31st, 1955, less than two years before the Philadelphia police discovered the boy in the box, an unknown perpetrator abducted a two-year-old boy. This two-year-old boy was Stephen Craig Damon. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, and was taken from a grocery storefront in East Meadow, New York. 
Now, when authorities found the boy in the box, people did initially question whether he actually was Damon because of their similar ages and physical characteristics. Investigators followed up this lead only to learn that Damon had broken his arm prior to his disappearance, while the boy in the box did not appear to suffer from the same fracture. In addition, the footprints did not match, leading examiners to conclude that the boy in the box probably wasn't Damon. In 2003, law enforcement compared DNA taken from the boy in the box with biological evidence collected from Damon's sister, and they determined that there was not, in fact, a link between the two children. And now to our most believed theory. This came from a woman known only as Martha, who said she was a girl, and her mother, who worked as a librarian, purchased the child and brought him to their home in Philadelphia. According to Martha, her mother told her the boy's name was Jonathan and made him sleep in their dank and dirty basement. Martha alleges her mother, who had subjected her to sexual abuse, bought Jonathan for the express purpose of doing the same thing to him. She also claims that Jonathan vomited in the bathtub and her mother smashed the boy against the floor, killing him. Interestingly, the examiner had found that the boy ate beans prior to his death and had thrown them back up, although this information was never released to the public. Now, after the child died, Martha said she accompanied her mother to get rid of the boy's body somewhere in Philadelphia. And while detectives investigated Martha's claims, which came decades after the discovery of the boy, they were unable to find evidence that proved the information she provided was either true or false. In 1998, more than 41 years after police discovered the boy's body close to a country road near Philadelphia, officials exhumed the body of the boy in the box to collect DNA evidence from his remains. Forensic analysts were able to extract mitochondrial DNA from one of the child's teeth, and they used his DNA profile to eliminate leads that had included possible living relatives of the boy. Now, although authorities had buried the boy in a potter's field before his exhumation in 1998, investigators extracted DNA from his remains where then city officials instructed that he be buried at Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. On November 11, 1998, officials laid the boy to rest in a donated casket. When no one came forward to claim the boy in the box, the Philadelphia detectives who handled the child's case paid for the boy's funeral. They initially had marked him with a stone marker, Heavenly Father blessed this unknown boy. The simple headstone also included the boy's date of discovery, February 25th, 1957. Now, after exhuming his body in 1998 and reburying him to Philadelphia Ivy Hill Cemetery with a new granite headstone of America's unknown child, a bench which was donated as well as the child's original marker are also at the boy's gravesite. While the boy in the box's case had sparked countless tips and leads, no one has identified the boy in the box. Even though his identity is unknown, Philadelphia has not forgotten the child. A Philadelphia man also created a website dedicated to America's unknown child and the investigation into his death. While it has been decades since the police first found the boy's body off of that country road in Philadelphia, investigators and citizens alike are still dedicated to uncovering the identities of both the child 
and whomever is responsible for his death. Guys, that is all for this week. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as this was a case that I was not even familiar with and found very interesting. We'll link up any pictures of the photos of the boy in all of our social media platforms as well as our updated website where you're going to be able to find all episodes as we mentioned earlier. Please make sure to check out the new website. Again, go to StoryWorth. The link is at the top of the page and you get $20 off your first book as well as checking out that donate button. 99 cents a month, not a big investment and it helps our podcast keep going. We thank you guys again, all of our listeners out there for sticking with us through the process of our transition. And I hope that you guys have a great week. Until next time. Flowers just make you perfect girl, perfect girl You can have it all because you're perfect